Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, first things first, I'm going to ask everybody to turn off their cell phones if they have them on. There's nothing worse than getting interrupted by a phone call while you're trying to listen to an engaging talk. Let me see here. What do we have here? Um, keep in mind, this session is being recorded. It is then published. So should there be an outburst in the crowd, that will also be recorded and published. We don't need any YouTube sensations or any viral internet memes to come out of a Sackpaw presentation. That has happened before. So, so it, the nice thing about Sackpaw is I never have to worry. Rarely do things get too rowdy, but it's happened. It's happened. There's a, there's a Danish fellow who we've had to escort a couple of times. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're also, I, I've also got to take care of the financial matter, which is lunch is $14 a piece or $2 if you're just having coffee. If you can have someone at the table, just identify them as the accountant. Um, you can direct all your, all your slurs to them. Have them gather the $14, throw it in the basket. We'll have our thugs come around and collect it later. That's $14 for lunch, $2 if you just have coffee. Um, our presentation from Michael Byers is going to take 25 to 30 minutes. It, I hope it doesn't take longer than that because Annalise gets angry. Uh, then we have lunch. Then we have a Q&A, and we all wrap up at 1.30. I go back to work. Hopefully, the rest of you just go back to enjoy the day. We'll see how that goes. So I mentioned Michael Byers, who is our, our presenter today. That's the, that's the best word for it. We, have, we are going far afield today at Sackpaw. As, as I notice, our headline is Elon Musk, President of Mars. I, I mean, Elon Musk just got kicked out of being president of his own company, didn't he? But... The question is, the idea that's been kicked around, I, I mean, for, you know, more than 100 years in science fiction novels and everywhere else, and in scientific quarters, is colonizing space. The idea behind Star Trek, right? What happens if we have to negotiate peace treaties with aliens? What, are, what is the real possibility of colonizing another planet? There's got to be a reason that so many countries give so much money towards Mars rover landings and things like that. So this talk is going to focus on current or readily foreseeable issues of space debris, space mining, and the establishment of settlements on Mars, which does not include little green aliens, I don't think, but it might. Our presenter is Dr. Michael Byers. He's, this. listen to these credentials, and then just gloss over the Duke University part. Michael Byers holds the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. Sorry, I, did I gloss over the UBC part too. His work focuses on outer space, the Arctic, climate change, armed conflict, and Canadian foreign and defense policy. He's been, well, here we go. This is, he's been a professor of law at Duke University. He's got, you know, he's worked at several prestigious universities, you know, obviously not including Duke. Uh, he's taught as a visiting professor at the universities of Cape Town, Tel Aviv, Nord in Norway, at Russia's Novosibirsk. Is that pretty close? Even a little close? I can deal with that. Um, he won, this is amazing. He is an author most recently of International Law and the Arctic, which won the 2013 Donner Prize. And is, I, I know International Law and the Arctic shouldn't be exciting. It probably is, because when you think about the, all the countries that have vied for control of the Arctic, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it won the 2013 Donner Prize, which hopefully came with a big, big check. 
He's a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail newspaper. That one we'll be happy about. Again, the Duke University, not so much. He will also be giving a presentation on the same subject tomorrow night, or tomorrow afternoon, 3 p.m., in L1060 at the, at, the, at the University of Lethbridge Library. So that's L1060 at the University of Lethbridge Library, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Before I go on any longer, everybody, let's have a big round for Dr. Michael Byers. Duke, Univer Duke University does have a rather good basketball team. Um, wow, it's, it's great to, to be here. I, I've spoken at, at SACPA before, um, and I was a, a good friend of Gordon Campbell's, so there's a, a, a real emotional connection to, to this group, um, and it's half century of, uh, of uh, uh, exchanging ideas with Southern Albertans. Um, I want to tell you a, a story. Um, that is also quite personal. On December 19th, 2015, my then 15-year-old son Cameron came to me and, and said, I, I've decided what I want for Christmas. Um, and I said, hit me, because I knew it was going to cost money. And he said, I, I, I want us to, to go to Orlando tomorrow. And I said, Orlando? Disney? And he said, no, he said, Cape Canaveral. There's a space launch we absolutely have to see. And I just found incredibly cheap flights <laughs> on the internet. And, and he was right, they were incredibly cheap. I guess last minute, right? Um, so I thought, well, what the heck, right? It, it's Christmas. So uh, we went. And we flew to Orlando and, and rented a big SUV, because that's all they had, and drove out to Cape Canaveral and, and actually ended up on the banks of the Banana River, uh, 10 kilometers away from Cape Canaveral Air Force Base, um, early in the evening, just after dark, with 15,000 other people who, like my son, knew that something big was about to happen. And, um, and, and this launch occurred, and it was a Falcon 9 rocket. So not a huge rocket, but a big rocket. Um, sort of thing that you know uh, carries uh, big satellites into orbit or the cargo resupply ships for the International Space Station. Uh, so, so roughly 24 stories high. Um, and, and probably, I'm, I'm guessing here, but, but you know, a third of the width of this room across the base. Big enough that, that 10 kilometers away from this, you get quite the um, uh, overload of your senses. Uh, the, the, the brightness is, um, is almost blinding. And then when the shock waves hit you, you feel your internal organs vibrate. Um, so space launch is, is really cool. And I'm going, wow, this, this is actually cool. This is worth the trip. And Cameron's looking at me and saying, uh, the big thing hasn't happened yet. 
and it was a totally clear night, so we actually saw the, the whole launch. So we saw the rocket go up, and then roughly 110 kilometers above the Earth, we, we saw the, the nine engines on the Falcon 9 shut down, and, and we then saw the, the, the second stage engine light up to, to carry the satellite further up into orbit. Um, we saw that, so between 110 and 130 kilometers above the Earth. But then something unusual happened. That, that, that first stage of the rocket where the engines had shut down, which is about 19 stories high when it's standing on the ground, turned around, did a, a 180, and fired up three of its engines and started coming back towards us. And, and uh, roughly five or six minutes later, I mean, it's coming back towards us. So this is an, essentially the same size as an ICBM, and it's coming back towards us. Uh, but then it, 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 it flips again, fires its engines again to slow itself down as it's re-entering the atmosphere to reduce the, the friction on the rocket. Wow, that's cool. And we're watching all this. And then it's coming down 10 kilometers away from us, fires its engines again, and four legs extend from the bottom of the rocket, and it lands on a landing pad. Just like in those 1950s and 1960s space cartoons, okay? Anyone here grew up in, in, in Great Britain? This was the Thunderbirds, okay? It, it was just like that. And, and, and again, this thing is big. And, and so 99% of my brain is going absolutely crazy, along with the 15,000 space geeks around me, jumping up and down and saying, wow, way cool. And 1% of my brain is remaining an intellectual. And, and, and it's working away, and it's going, whoa. This is, this is big, because this was the first time it ever happened. This was the first time this had ever happened. And I'm thinking, okay. They've just radically changed a form of human transportation. They've just knocked 90% off the cost of space launches. You see, a, a rocket that size is about the same size as a Boeing 787 Dreamliner. It has roughly the same level of technology, roughly the same amount of computer equipment inside, okay, as a seven. Eight, seven. It even uses roughly the same amount of fuel to, to go up and back as a 787 flying from Vancouver to London. Okay? So there are all the similarities. But up until December 21st, 2015, we'd thrown away those rockets after using them for two and a half minutes. Now, imagine if we threw away a Boeing 787 after every single use. Imagine how expensive it would be to fly to Europe or Asia if they threw away the plane after one flight. Well, that's what we've been doing for over half a century, is throwing away these things. So the cost is really, really high. So space has been insanely expensive and therefore limited. And Elon Musk and SpaceX just took care of that. Right? There's one of these rockets now that's flown four times. They're expecting to be able to fly them dozens, if not hundreds, of times each. 
They've now got plans to bring back the second stages, to bring back the fairings, to essentially bring back the whole rocket. And again, the, the, the cost reduction is, is phenomenal when you do this. So I'm thinking about this, I'm going, well, this isn't as big as the invention of the wheel. But it might be as big as the invention of the steam engine. And, and that might sound surprising to you, except in 2019, we are all intensely reliant on space already before the effects of this technology. Has anyone here done any banking this week? <laughs> okay, you're relying on space for those split-second timing that's involved in, in banking transactions to get the exchange rates absolutely correct. and. Anyone here um, used, uh, I don't know, Google Earth, Google Maps? Anyone got a cell phone? Ha! Huh. Right? Um, anyone uh, here watch television? Yeah. Um, and I, I could go on and on. Anyone here notice that all of the uh, furrows and all the the, the rows of plants in the farmer's fields around Lethbridge are perfectly straight with no overlaps. That's space technology, right? Those tractors are driving themselves using GPS. Anyone flown on an airplane? Navigation. I mean, it just goes on and on. Remote sensing. Agriculture has been radically transformed. Farmers can get daily updates on the moisture level in their fields from space. They can spot crop infestations for space, and big farmers now get daily updates of earth imaging technology from companies like Planet, based uh, in San Francisco. I've done a lot of work in the Arctic, sea ice, radar sat, communications. Canada was the third country in space because of, uh, of the need for the CBC to broadcast from coast to coast to coast. Uh, we've all been intensely dependent on space and all of a sudden we've just knocked 90, 95% off the cost of actually putting equipment there. So we're, we're on the cusp of the next big technological revolution. Everyone's talking about AI and, and AI might be important, especially in space, right? But, but the space revolution that's happening uh, is, is just as fundamental, perhaps even more so. So I'm thinking, okay, I've been working on other things up to now. I'm standing on the banks of the Banana River with my son. I'm looking at this. I'm thinking, okay, I've been working on climate change. That's big. It's also depressing. I've been working on, on armed conflict. It's big. It's also depressing. Space. Wow. I, I can actually work on something now that, that's cutting edge, that's important, and, and to some degree might be optimistic. So I, I completely threw out my research agenda and, and, and started anew. Uh, and I'm discovering that there's actually a lot in common with the things I've done before. Um, and, and I won't go into that now in my presentation because I want to talk about, about three challenges. Uh, but you'll see the connections as I, as I talk through those. So we're, we're, we've been putting up a lot of stuff especially into low Earth orbit, but also into to geostationary orbit. There have been over 5,000 orbital launches since Sputnik in 1957. 
Um, and, and right now there's an orbital launch roughly every two to three days somewhere in the world. China, Russia, India, uh, the United States especially. Um, Arian Space, which is the European Union, uh, launching from French Guyana, um, launches all the time, stuff going up, satellites for all kinds of applications, roughly half of them military, roughly half of them civilian, an increase in the civilian satellites actually as, as new applications come forward. And, and low Earth orbit in particular is getting a bit crowded. I mean, that, that, that sounds strange because space is big. Right? But, but low Earth orbit is becoming a bit crowded. And one of the problems is that these satellites and spacecraft and, and discarded rocket stages that haven't been brought back to Earth because they weren't SpaceX, like lots of those, hundreds of those floating around in orbit also. Um, there, there's even a couple of wrenches that were dropped by astronauts. Um, there, there's, there's stuff up there and it's flying around at 17,500 kilometers an hour relative to Earth because orbit is a combination of speed and gravity, right? There's, there's gravity in orbit. Uh, there's, no, there's, there's no lack of gravity on the International Space Station. They're weightless because they're moving forward at the same speed they're falling. Um, so 17,500 kilometers an hour, all these things zipping around, they're not all on the same trajectory. Sometimes the trajectories often are, are crossing. They can get up to relative speeds of actually over 50,000 kilometers an hour at relative speed. And when there's an impact, you can imagine what happens. So in 2007, the uh, Chinese uh, army, in its infinite wisdom, decided to test a missile against one of their own satellites, 700 kilometers above the Earth. You've heard of Space Force? Well, some people are thinking about armed conflict in orbit, and the Chinese decided to show the world they could shoot down satellites, so they, they shot at one of their own, and they hit it. Successful mission, I except they created tens of thousands of pieces of space debris. And when you take something that's the size of a minivan and you shatter it into 50,000 pieces, you dramatically increase the surface area of the material, right? It's just that the, the surface area just goes up almost exponentially. So the, the chances of one of those tiny pieces colliding with something else goes up at the same time. There are millions of pieces of space debris in low Earth orbit right now, most of them the result of collisions. The International Space Station has been moved, boosted to a higher orbit on over 20 occasions in the last 20 years. And that's just because we're able to track the bigger pieces from Earth using radar. And we see that there's a big piece that's coming towards the International Space Station, and we contact the astronauts, and they boost to get out of the way. But collisions are a real problem, and the possibility of, of runaway space debris, of getting to a certain number of pieces whereby collisions become inevitable and, and essentially snowball, uh, is very real. It's called the, the Kessler Syndrome. And one of the big issues is how we actually 
avoid a tragedy of the commons. Low Earth orbit is a commons. It's like the atmosphere is a commons. We're, we're messing up the atmosphere with greenhouse gas emissions. Just a little bit higher up, we're messing up low Earth orbit with space debris. These are tragedies of the commons, and the question is how do we deal with this? How do we reduce um, the amount of, of debris? And the good news here is that countries are starting to coordinate on this. Since, since 2007, when the Chinese had their uh, little experiment, no country has tested a missile against a satellite in low Earth orbit. Uh, in a way that would create space debris. And the head of the U.S. Strategic Command said fairly recently, with regards to anti-satellite weapons, and I'm quoting, whatever you do, you don't create debris. So militaries are pulling back. They're being very cautious now about space debris. Why? Because Half of the satellites are military satellites, and they're just as vulnerable to debris as civilian satellites. And so there's a, already now a holding back. Um, and the U.S. government, including under the Trump administration, this is fairly recent, is now requiring that all space launching contractors, all companies that launch things for the U.S. government, deorbit their rockets. They've got to take enough fuel that they can make sure the rocket comes back. The SpaceX ones land. The other companies, they just burn up. But they're not left in low Earth orbit, and, and that's part of what's happening. The second issue I want to talk about very quickly is space mining. Um, people get very excited about space mining because we, we know that there are asteroids flying around that have over a trillion dollars worth of precious minerals, rare earth elements, platinum, things like that, just, just zipping around, sometimes passing quite close to earth. And people got excited about that, and then they realized that there was something more valuable on some of these asteroids, and that is ice, water. Um, it, it costs a lot of money. It takes a huge amount of rocket fuel to lift rocket fuel out of earth gravity. So if you want to go to, to Mars or you want to send a, a probe off uh, to Pluto, um, if you want to build a, a space station uh, around the moon, uh, most of your cost goes into the fuel that's needed to lift more fuel out of gravity. So wouldn't it be great if we just had a gas station in space that was sourcing its fuel in space? And there's... There's lots of water in our solar system, and a good part of it is on asteroids. So go to an asteroid, mine ice, use that ice, H2O, break it up, um, and all of a sudden, hey, we've got rocket fuel. So, so the questions arise as to, okay, um, how are we going to do this? And, 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 and work is being done. Right now, there are two separate probes that are sampling asteroids. One's a Japanese probe. The other is a NASA probe. The NASA probe is called OSIRIS-REx. You might have heard about it because it has a Canadian laser altimeter on board. And they're actually doing samples, bringing them back to Earth. And yes, it's science, but it's also technology testing for the purposes of mining. And this raises all kinds of interesting questions. 
One of which is that, that if you're mining in, in zero gravity, because these asteroids are more or less than zero gravity, uh, the escape velocity is really, really low, and, and, and so you're probably going to create debris. And, and these asteroids that we're going to mine will be passing close to Earth, so all of a sudden we're going to be creating more debris passing close. Oh, you see the problem. More space debris. But the other, even more uh, problematic issue is that, again, these asteroids pass close to Earth. And what happens if you remove mass from an asteroid? You probably change its trajectory. So we have to make sure that these mining enterprises don't accidentally put a big asteroid on an Earth impact trajectory. That would be an unfortunate consequence. <laughs> Especially because, well, we could, we could wipe out our speed. Well, actually, no, maybe. We could wipe out many species. We could cause a cataclysmic event. We could even cause a life-destroying event with a satellite that, uh, sorry, an asteroid that was large enough. So, so regulating these issues, asteroid mining, space debris are, are related and problematic and not enough thinking and planning has gone into these and with reusable rockets, this future is closer than it was just three and a half years ago. But the final issue, Elon Musk, president of Mars. Because all of a sudden, 90% of the cost of space launch has been eliminated, it's possible to conceive of missions to, to Mars. Uh, and, and SpaceX is working on this, and so is, is NASA. Um, and we have the technology to do it. We, we put human beings on the moon 50 years ago. We can land on Mars. We've done it a dozen times with Mars rovers of various kinds. We can do that. And we can actually provide life support for astronauts doing landings on celestial bodies, because we've done that as far back as 1969. Uh, we can get to Mars. No question. There, there are lots of questions that arise, like what about the health of the astronauts? all those cosmic rays and other radiation that occurs in deep space, uh, life expectancy goes down. Uh, if they get to Mars, they're probably not coming back because it's a pretty long journey. So are they going to have babies there? And what is a baby born in greatly reduced gravity going to look like? Um, lots of interesting technological and scientific issues, but, but imagine that in my lifetime or in the lifetime of my children, we actually put people on Mars, and, and yes, they live there, probably underground to avoid the radiation. They will have water and oxygen because there's water on Mars. We know that now. And so there's a colony, and they're reproducing. And you can imagine that they're going to develop culturally in ways that are different from here on Earth. It takes about 25 minutes for a signal to get from Earth to Mars. So, so there's not going to be any Skype conversations, right? There are no telephone calls, right? It, it's, it's, it's a journey one way that, that will take roughly three quarters of a year, right? So, so that kind of distance is equivalent to the kind of technological distance, the temporal distance that existed when the first Europeans were sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. 
and they develop culturally in different ways. And perhaps they're looking back at Earth and they're seeing that Donald Trump Jr. is really messing up the United States. Maybe we've collapsed into a bunch of autocracies. Maybe Earth has been fatally damaged by climate change. It's entirely conceivable that they might decide at some point, once the population grows, that, that they don't want to be a colony. They certainly don't want to be run by SpaceX. Because this would be a little bit like a, a great, you know, 17th or 18th century trading company. SpaceX could be the Hudson Bay Company of our future. So they decide one day, okay, we're going to declare independence. We're going to exercise our right of self-determination. Well, what could we on earth say to that? We recognize the right of self-determination throughout the 20th century. Most of the members of the United Nations are former colonies who exercised that right that became independent. And what about Elon Musk? He'll be an old man by then. But he has stated, and this is pretty much a quote, that he, he intends to die on Mars and hopefully not on impact. <laughs> so suppose there are 10,000 people, it's, it's 20, I don't know, it's, it's 2040 or 2050, and they have an election and Musk gets elected. Elon Musk, president of Mars, well, you, you can't stop him legally. You can't stop him technologically. You probably can't stop him economically. He did not lose his position as president of the company. He just had to step down as chair of the board. But no, no, this is all in the planning. And why would anyone want to stop him? Isn't it really cool that we might potentially become an interplanetary species? Not any of us in this room, but some of humanity? Isn't that a, an aspiration or a possibility that should excite us rather than concern us? And just think of all the governance challenges that professors of international politics can play with as this situation unfolds. Thank you very much.